G'day, the Bible bloke here. Thanks for joining me. It's great to have you along. Grab your Bibles and let's get stuck in. By the late 1890s, the idea and persona of Santa Claus as we know him today was pretty much starting to take shape. In his book, Christmas, A Candid History, Bruce David Forbes refers to this idea of Santa as a snowball, starting small and gathering size and momentum as it rolls down the mountain. A bit like the old cartoons. Each new layer of nuance and meaning wrapped around the older material. The legend that was St Nicholas has grown into something other than the picture of charity and goodwill that was Nicholas of Murat. We still have a little way to go before we can put that last little trimming of tinsel on the Santa of today. With the artwork of Thomas Nast fresh in the collective Christmas memory, we fast forward about 50 years and meet up with one Haddon Sundblom. Now Haddon was born in 1899 and died in 1976. He settled himself in Chicago and made a career as a commercial artist. He did some illustrating for the Saturday Evening Post and the Ladies' Home Journal, but he also contributed a bunch of art for the purposes of advertising a whole gamut of clients. Folk like Nabisco, Maxwell House Coffee, Palmolive, Cashmere Bouquet, Whitman Chocolates, Goodyear Tyres, Whiskey and Beer, Cars and even the US Marine Corps. I guess in these terms, not only was he prolific, but he was also successful. Enter old mate Coca-Cola. The history of Coca-Cola makes for interesting reading of its own, but sadly it's outside the scope of this particular podcast. I will say that one thing Coca-Cola did well was marketing. It still does. After all, the Coke logo is instantly and universally recognisable. Coca-Cola looked to a variety of well-known artists of the day and they portrayed themselves associated with an attractive lifestyle. Coke ads pointed out that Coke was refreshing and thirst-quenching. I have to admit I find it a bit too sugary for that claim to be true, at least for me. Given that Coke was founded during the Prohibition and was marketed to appeal to the popular temperance movement, it worked its way into the American psyche as a healthy alternative. Coke advertised itself as the Great Temperance Beverage. I quote from one of its ads from 1906. It reads, Among modern businessmen, and with the rising cult of younger men, the most marked tendency of the day is towards strict temperance. In this connection, Coca-Cola admirably fills the universal American demand for a strictly temperance beverage, which is at once delicious, refreshing, and absolutely harmless, and which stands for those truly American traits, healthy activity of mind and body. It has been repeatedly analysed by chemists of national reputation and declared to be as harmless as tea or coffee. Carbonated in bottles and on draft at font. Five cents. Archidokes, there you have it. Coke immediately positioned itself as a harmless alternative for other more alcoholic drinks. A drink that fits in with the American ideal of healthy activity of mind and body. Oh, goodness only knows what the rest of the world were aspiring to at the time, but hey, well, let's go with it. With Coke established as a market force and by this time a cultural icon, Santa Claus enters the advertising fray. Dusted off, 
and trundled out, given a long white beard, a prodigious belly, a wide belt and red suit, and a hat with white fluffy trimming, and yes, you guessed it, a bottle of Coke in hand. Thanks, Haddon Sunblom. The slogan Coke Time appears top right and below it in a red circle we read, Drink Coca-Cola in bottles. The red and white of Santa was designed to fit in with the instantly recognisable red and white of the Coca-Cola logo. And it worked. According to Bruce David Forbes, it was the advertising that appeared on billboards throughout America around Christmas time, featuring the artwork of, yes, Haddon Sunblom, and that really set the image of Santa hard and fast in the mind of Americans. The familiar image of Santa was now everywhere. As Christmas approached, thanks to Coke, he was unavoidable. Jerry Bowler, in his biography of Santa Claus, states that the overwhelming ubiquity of these advertisements ensured that no rival version of Santa could emerge in the North American consciousness. Santa was here to stay. As we have seen, Santa was portrayed as protector, disciplinarian and gift giver. At various times through his history, morphing from St Nicholas of Mura to Santa we know today, one of his roles held more weight than others at a particular time. Bruce David Forbes argues that the religious aspect of Santa has given way to Santa the gift giver. Santa seemingly has become this jolly old grandfather figure who gives gifts to everyone at Christmas. Or does he? If the original intent was to present a figure who was appealing to both religious and non-religious people, someone who embodied the spirit of Christmas that Dickens wanted to revive, someone who, as Bruce David Forbes put it, brought joy to children and families, who represented the spirit of giving and non-judgmental warmth of good feeling among all people, then I think the Santa of today has gone a little bit off the rails, or perhaps it might be the case that the emphasis on Santa as disciplinarian is coming forward more than is comfortable. Who is naughty? Who is nice? It's up to Santa to pass judgment. Over the last little while, you might be forgiven for thinking that I am totally, completely and utterly anti-Santa, and in presenting this history of the jolly old fat man, it might seem that I have been a bit more, well, harsh. Sometimes the facts add up to an uncomfortable truth. In looking at the history of something as I have, it can reveal its challenges. I must confess here that I have shrugged on the red suit on two occasions. Let me tell you, the first time I rolled up in red on a red fire truck with a red sack to hand out lollies to several hundred screaming primary school children. Oh, I could probably say primal school children and be more accurate. Apart from being mobbed, the heat was horrendous. 36 degrees and I'm decked out in red velvet. I wouldn't blame you for questioning my sanity. I know I did. I can't say it was an enjoyable experience. I think I'm still suffering the trauma. I'm sure I'm still suffering from the heat stroke. The second time anyone saw me in the red suit was for a church pageant. 
Santa made his appearance, complete with heat fog glasses, walking down the centre aisle, trying very hard not to trip over any of the children, his own included, who were seated at the front of the auditorium, watching intently what was happening on stage. I delivered my lines to the MC, who happened to be a kangaroo hand puppet. In rehearsal it was a wombat, but that's another story. The idea was to bring that bit of Christmas cheer, and point one and all to the real reason for the season. Santa makes his exit, stage left, and leaves all and sundry focused on the little baby lying in the manger. It was actually a doll dressed up, but hey. For me, Santa will always fill that minor role, and that's the way it should be. My family have always put out Christmas stockings for Santa to fill, with knick-knacks, lollies, treats, bibs and bobs, ever since the kids were little. Never anything substantial, mind you, because the real gifts were under the tree, and everyone knew they were from Mum and Dad and represented the gifts that the wise men brought with them from the East. But they also represent the ultimate gift of Jesus himself, which is what we truly celebrate at Christmas. And yet, what we're dealing with is not just a social phenomenon, but very much a spiritual one. The horrible thing is that Santa has become the figurehead for the push to remove Christ from Christmas. It's no longer the nativity scene that is front and centre, but Santa. The Christmas parade they hold each year in the city mall has Santa, pride of place. And if we are lucky, very lucky, we might see Mary on a donkey with Joseph leading the way. They are usually up the back somewhere, tail-enders, filling up the numbers once the main attraction has passed by. They are usually wedged in between dancers dressed as flowers and a couple of people doing their best to walk around on stilts. But therein lies the problem I have with this whole Santa scenario. Guys, it's not about Santa. Mary and Joseph should be the ones leading the parade. The rest of it should follow behind. Attention should be on the little baby who was born in Bethlehem. As Christians, followers of Jesus, then Jesus is the one we should look to, always first, always foremost. Before we even think about dusting off the creepy little elves to put on shelves, before we unpack the tree and dust off the ornaments and check to see if we have enough tinsel, and whether or not the lights are working properly, Jesus should be the shining light. And it's not just on Christmas that Christ should be celebrated. Is Christmas the only day we are seriously focused on who Christ is and what he came to do? Is Christmas the only time of year that we make room in our hearts for the God who is with us? Before we can put Christ back into Christmas, we should put Christ back into ourselves. Jesus is not just a once a year thing. Jesus is an everyday reality. Jesus is a life relationship, full and rich. Every time I see the baby Jesus in the nativity, a part of me wishes that I had been there, like a crusty old uncle who occasionally gets to pick the baby up to look into his eyes of peace and wisdom and feel the love that God had given to the earth. This is not something I either get or expect from Santa Claus, and knowing Jesus in my everyday, the reality of his love and his presence, his being there is something that gives me real strength and real hope. 
Jesus is so, so, so much more than the social phenomena who is working hard to usurp him. For the last couple of thousand years, people have been trying to do just that, and still at the very heart of Christmas is Christ, and that's the way it should be. On Christmas morning, as my family and I gather together around our tree and celebrate each other and all that we have been given by God's incredible grace, as we celebrate by giving the gifts, we also celebrate Jesus as the ultimate gift, not just on Christmas Day, no, but every single day of the year that is to follow. That's what brings me joy. That's what brings me peace. In reflecting on this, I hope you come to feel the same. Friends, until we meet again, I pray that you are blessed by deeper wisdom as you open and read God's Word. G'day, the Bible bloke here. Thanks for joining me. It's great to have you along. Grab your Bibles and let's get stuck in. The Apostle Paul was on his way to Rome. In Acts 27 verse 5, we read the words of Luke. When we sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. It's from the Greek, so technically it's Myra. If I really want to be pedantic about it, but then if I was going to be a stickler for these things, I'd have to go with the hard Ks we find in Greek, which means that we have, well, actually, Kilikia. But I fear that would mess with people a bit too much. Anyway. Paul and his companions didn't stay in Mura long, they changed ships and continued their voyage. I think it's kind of cool that Paul happened to visit the town where St Nicholas would later hang out. Wherever the Apostle Paul went, he shared the good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Gospel message would spread to the very ends of the earth. It's a fair bet that the Gospel was something that found root and grew in Mura. The legend of St Nicholas would also spread from his hometown in southern Turkey to the ends of the earth. However, the legend morphed into something else. We are hard pressed to pin the real Nicholas of Murad down. We know that he was an attendee at the Council of Nicaea, yet very little else can be said definitively. What we do have are the stories that have attached themselves to St Nicholas. One of the best known has Nicholas providing a dowry for the daughters of a poor widower. The father was uncertain about the future of his three girls. Back in the day, you see, a dowry is part of the deal of finding and keeping a husband. It seems that Nicholas had wealthy parents and he had on his heart to share his blessings. When he learned of the widower's situation, the story goes, late one night he dropped a bag of gold through the man's window. This allowed the oldest daughter to marry. A little while later, Nicholas dropped a second bag of gold through the window for the second daughter's nuptials. And finally, he dropped a third bag of gold and the father could breathe a huge sigh of relief that all of his daughters had found husbands and the romantic in me assumes they lived happily ever after. One variation of the story has Nicholas dropping the gold down the chimney, but it's more likely this version has more modern influences. Another version says that the bag of gold fell into a stocking one of the daughters had freshly washed and hung on a mantle to dry. I'm not sure why they had a mantle near the window, but anyway. By the time Nicholas got around to delivering the third bag of gold, the girl's father was onto him, and he waited up to find out 
who the generous benefactor was. Of course, Nicholas swore the man to secrecy and said that thanks should go to God alone, for it was through God's provision that Nicholas could freely give. As happens with these things, the word soon spread, and anyone who received an anonymous gift would attribute it to St. Nicholas. I'm reminded of the times when Jesus healed and swore folks to secrecy, and they went off and blabbed anyway. As an aside, the three gold bags came to be represented by three gold balls, and these gold balls were then appropriated and used as designating the shops of pawnbrokers. I'm not sure how that fits in with the idea of heartfelt personal charity that St Nicholas was trying to prove. Another story was having Nicholas travelling by sea to Egypt and Palestine. As happens at sea, a storm brewed up. Apparently Nicholas calmed the sea, or how do we find that familiar, when a sailor high up in the rigging fell to his death, good old Nicholas was said to have restored him to life. There are variations of the story, but the central event remains the same, and you get the idea. The sailor was dead, and it was Nicholas who brought him back to life. It seems that not only did St Nicholas care for the needy, particularly children, but he also brought comfort to those who prayed to him, resulting in the assurance that he would watch over and protect whoever it was who had prayed. Personally, I thought that was Jesus' job. But hey. Now, St Nicholas died on the 6th of December. Any presents that he had given out soon became associated with the lead-up to Christmas itself. Also, on his feast days, the sailors at the port of Barai, or Barry in Italy, where Nick's bones reside, carry a statue of the saint from the cathedral down to the sea so that St Nicholas can give a blessing for safe voyages in the year to come. It is reported that in 1066, before he helped on the boat to England, William the Conqueror prayed to St Nicholas that his invasion of England would go well. Slowly, however, St Nicholas went out of vogue. There were small pockets of devotion, and so the traditions were carried on in select places. It was all the go in the 1100s, though, in France, where nuns began to deliver good stuff in secret to the homes of poor children on the eve of St Nicholas Day. Maybe they thought it was a great idea to do that. It eventually became something of a thing, and popular enough for markets to pop up here and there where people could purchase toys and sweets and bickies and stuff. By the time the 1300s dawned, good old St Nicholas was firmly established in the Netherlands, albeit with a Spanish influence. We start getting the idea that St Nicholas has morphed into something, ooh, well, a little less pleasant. Let me fill you in. Sinterklaas, or St Nicholas, apparently spent the better part of the year hanging out in Spain. Why? I don't really know maybe he liked Spain, where he supposedly kept an eye on the children from afar to determine who behaved properly prior to his annual visit. Sinterklaas was often accompanied by a dark-skinned assistant by the name of Zwart Piet, or Black Peter. Some said that his skin was dark because he was the one who made the trips down the chimneys for gift delivery. Makes sense. Others suggested that Black Pete was in fact the devil 
who St. Nicholas was apparently able to conquer and coerce into his service. Oh, steady on. Each year, for two or three weeks around Christmas time, Sinterklaas and Zwart Piet would arrive in Amsterdam from Spain. Sinterklaas, dressed as he was in his bishop clobber, would examine the children and then distribute token gifts to those who passed muster, and then give those who didn't over to Zwart Piet to deal with as he saw fit. Gee, with these guys out and about you'd want to keep your nose clean as a kid. The alternative was pretty dire. And there's a hint here for what happens in the future. Bear that one in mind as we move forward. At night, Sinterklaas hopped onto a white horse and rode over the rooftops, dropping gifts into the wooden clogs that children had left either on doorsteps or beside fireplaces. Always a little bit of hope in the heart of a child. Long about the time of the Reformation, someone had this U-Butte idea that because everyone who believes in Jesus was actually a saint, wow, and we all belong to a priesthood of believers, U-Beauty, in one true Christ, and that we didn't have to pray to anyone other than Jesus, that we should get rid of this idea of relying on good old St. Nicholas at Christmas time and actually replace him with the real reason for the season. How about instead of having St. Nick visit the kids, why don't we look to Jesus as the ultimate gift? And then any gift given that happened would have more of a spiritual context. Yep, well, that idea went down like a lead Lego. The problem, it seems, was that any gift giving that was shifted from the giving of gifts for the gift's own sake to something more spiritual kind of spoils the fun. You can't have Christmas overwhelmed by any kind of spiritual meaning. Get off the boat. It just wouldn't be um, Christmas. This, of course, is totally beside the point that the very word Christmas is a mass or celebration of Christ. Christ comes from the Greek meaning anointed, or the one set apart for a special and particular purpose. Jesus is at work in our lives, not just on Christmas Day. What if we were to be truly radical and celebrate who Jesus is and what Jesus did each and every day of the year? How would that look? How would that impact on our lives? It seems that the mention of the baby Jesus was, well, a little underwhelming. People just didn't get excited the way they did when St. Nicholas was mentioned. As these things do, it hung on by the skin of its teeth until it's found its way to America. And a bunch of guys got hold of it and Sinterklaas found his ultimate transformation. Enter stage left among the glitterati one Washington Irving. Thomas Nast and a guy by the name of Clement Moore also known as Henry Livingston. There are others in this story, but I will focus on these three for the moment and for the sake of time and space. You might be familiar with Washington Irving. He was considered by some to be America's first internationally known author, having penned such timeless epics as Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. You know, the story about the headless horseman who goes about terrorising the general populace. Our tale of good old St. Nick takes a turn when we discover that 
Irving wrote about the influence in St. Nicholas in the newly found American colony. As portrayed by Irving, St. Nick flew over the trees in a horse-drawn carriage and slid down chimneys to deliver gifts, supposedly in a flame-proof suit. What we discover when we dig a bit deeper is that Washington Irving wrote purely from his own imagination and drew not at all from any fact or even hint of history or tradition. In short, he made it up. The thing is, it caught on. Boy, did it catch on. Enter old mate Clement Moore. You may not know the name, but I'm sure you've heard his work. Let me fill you in. It starts off like this. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'The stockings were hung by the chimney with care "'in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. "'Of course, it is freely available on the interweb "'if you want to read the rest of the poem. "'It was, as you can imagine, a huge success.' Originally, Clement Moore recited the verses from memory to his children at Christmas time, but somehow a newspaper got hold of it. And the rest, as they say, yeah. But what we shouldn't miss is the importance of the poem in shaping our modern concept of Christmas. The poem altered our sensibilities. It was Moore who revamped this idea of Santa Claus and his sleigh pulled by reindeer. It may well have been that the idea of reindeer pulling a sleigh lack, you know, leached into the mix from Russian Orthodox Church, possibly from Lapland, or somewhere equally as cold, where reindeer are a huge part of not just the culture, but transportation. But Moore's poem cemented the shift from St Nicholas Day as it was on the 5th and 6th of December to Christmas Eve. I can't understate this. I can't stress this enough. The implications are massive especially when we look at gift-giving, because, in the poem, there is no reference to naughty or nice. This would come later. In The Night Before Christmas, we are given a Santa Claus who loves everyone, and in whom there is nothing to dread. What we have here is an attempt to replace Christ with Santa Claus. We don't want the spirituality of Jesus in the mix. Get rid of him. He requires too much of us. We just want the jolly old fat guy in the red suit who absolutely asks nothing and gives us everything. Enter the fray, one Thomas Nast. Tom came to America from Germany, that central hub of all things Christmas, when he was six. He was a bit of a dab hand with pencils and a crayon or two, and when he got a bit older he became the head cartoonist for Harper's Weekly and later even more famous by sketching, yeah, you guessed it, Santa Claus, with a jolly face, full beard, and a wide belt around a prodigious belly. Nast's drawings for Harper's Weekly added to the Christmas Santa mythology. You see, Nast gave us a Santa who had his headquarters in the North Pole, was a toy maker in his North Pole workshop, had elves as assistants, received letters from children, kept vast ledgers of children's name, and feasted on the snacks that were left for him in the homes he visited on Christmas Eve. Wow. And that's where the curtain must come down on Act 2 of the Santa Saga. We are starting to see how the image of Santa as we know him in modern times is starting to take shape, and it's not a very pleasant change. 
As Act 3 commences, we see how Coca-Cola steps onto the stage and mm, nothing is the same again. Friends, until we meet again, I pray that you are blessed by deeper wisdom as you open and read God's Word.